pastors from across the country, some from other parts of the world, and uh, it was a common conversation that we would have with each other as we, we interacted through the week as to what we're preaching and what book of the Bible we might be preaching in, and I, I really enjoyed being able to tell them I'm preaching through First Thessalonians. And they, they kind of did what you did when you heard I was going to first preach through First Thessalonians. You went, oh, okay, why? <laughs> I said, well, I love it because I, I get biblical voice to tell my church every week how much I love them. Because that's what the Apostle Paul does in here over and over and over is express how deeply he loves the people of his church and the church that he had the privilege to be a part of, to found. And that's what we see this morning in this passage as well. Genuine biblical ministry is not one that is merely full of intellectual pursuits and empty of emotion. In our pursuit to understand the meaning of the Bible, it is possible, perhaps, for us to assume that vibrant Christianity is composed of little more than intellectual affirmation of propositional truths and empty of any kind of emotional component. Now, while ministry must contain, if it's to be true ministry, it has to have biblical propositional truth behind it. It is not merely the intellectual affirmation of those truths that makes for vibrant Christianity. In fact, I would suggest that if you are internally unmoved by what you understand and affirm to be true in the Bible, then biblical truth probably plays a very small role at best in your life. Not to suggest that vibrant Christianity is only about emotional experiences and excitability, it is not, but it is very unlikely that you will externally obey what you are internally unaffected by. It is unlikely that you will hold on to objective beliefs that compel you very little. Genuine biblical ministry is not only full of affection. We could even say that genuine biblical ministry is affirmed by affection. Not just any kind of emotional effect, but a particular kind of affection and internal compulsion. Paul's ministry doesn't merely express affections. He uses his own affections in ministry as signs that actually affirm his ministry to be genuinely biblical. How does he know and how do the people that he's serving know that the ministry he's investing in them is genuinely true? Look at his affections. See what he expresses about his love for this church and what drives him. Now, as we have been studying together, Paul's emphasis in the first three chapters is how the Thessalonians, and by extension we could say all true churches, demonstrated what Paul referred to in chapter 1, verse 3, as the work of faith. That is, the efforts of life that flow from a compelling confidence in the person of Jesus. And that evidence of the work of faith was seen primarily in how Paul preached and how they responded. And we have been unpacking that for a number of weeks. How Paul preached, chapter 1, verse 5, unpacked even more in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. How they responded, chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, even more expansion in chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. But what is it then that actually energizes and drives Paul to preach as he does and they to respond as they are responding? Well, the affections of true biblical ministry compel Paul because he's confident in the truth. He actually believes the things he's preaching. He not only believes them, they move him, they drive him, they compel him. Even when he gets up in the morning and he doesn't feel like it, they drive him even further. These go beyond mere emotions. They're affections tied to truth and they drive him, they compel him. And these affections 
are vastly more than the flighty kinds of emotions that we tend to be associating this word affections with. It's more than that. Affections are deeper than just emotions. They are compulsions tied to truth. He is completely convinced of the truth. He is completely committed to the truth. And it drives him to have not only a certain kind of ministry, but a certain way he feels about these people. These affections, he expresses them here, that they actually confirm the true biblical nature of his preaching ministry and their responses to that ministry. And I want us to look at these together. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 20 is really an example to us. This is an example of the kind of affections that affirm a biblical approach to Christian ministry. If you want to know what it looks like to have the kind of affections that would affirm genuine ministry, here they are. Here's an example to us. So what kind of affections should you look for? What kind of affections should you notice that actually affirm a biblical approach to Christian ministry. There are two that we're going to highlight that I think are highlighted for us in these verses, verses 17 to 20. Two affections that affirm a biblical approach to ministry. You want to cultivate these, you want to see these, you want to express these in your heart to others. This should be in every elder's heart for the flock of which God has entrusted to them. These are the affections that affirm a biblical approach to ministry. Now first, let's look at the first kind of affection. I want to simply call them personal affections. Ministry is personal. It's not just public. It's personal. And there are personal affections involved. And you see these expressed by the Apostle Paul in verses 17 to 18. But what kind of personal affections are highlighted here? What does Paul show and exhibit for the Thessalonians in his affections that we should even look for in our approach to biblical ministry with each other? Well, let me outline a few ideas of what these personal affections might look like. First, they are heartfelt. It's a heartfelt ministry. It's a heartfelt ministry. Where do I get that idea? It's the summary statement for this first phrase in verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. This is such a loaded phrase. Someone asked me before the service, are you really going to be able to get through these verses? I said, you have no idea the struggle it is because they're so packed Well, he writes this sentence on the heels of what he had just expressed to them earlier in the passage before it about how much they were suffering. You remember how much they were suffering. We looked at it last week. Their own countrymen were standing against them. Their own countrymen were constantly pursuing them with hatred, persecuting them. And you know what that kind of suffering tends to do to people, they start questioning whether or not what they believe in is really worth believing in any further if you're going to suffer this. So are we really pursuing a genuine approach to Christianity? Is it worth suffering this for? And on the heels of that, Paul says, I want you to know everyone else might be rejecting you, but I love you. And I affirm my love for you. Everything you're suffering for is worth it. And I want you to know I affirm what I'm seeing in you. It's helpful that he again calls them brethren because they are family to him. And what was happening to them was happening to people that he viewed as his own personal family. You are my brethren. But not only is that family-like love and commitment expressed through the word brethren, but it's also expressed in this phrase, having been taken away from you. Having been taken away from you. One word in the Greek New Testament. Ap orphanazo. Ap orphanizo. An intensification of the word orphanizo. Orphanizo. Do you hear an English word? I have been orphaned from you. 
this is the only time you will ever see any writer in the New Testament use this word. If he wanted to say, hey, guys, I got run out of the city, I got taken away from you, there are other words more common in the Greek New Testament he could have used. If he wants to express how personal he feels this, if he wants to express a personal affection for them, he pulls out of the bag of vocabulary this particular word to say, I feel like I have been ripped away from my family, orphaned. Same kind of pain that a young child would feel if they were being ripped out of their parents' hands and given over to hate-filled people. Now I want you to notice, he doesn't say that they were orphaned. Now we we already know Paul has has expressed to them, he has a father-like love for them. He even expressed earlier in chapter 2 that he had a love that was mother-like for them. So you would expect that he was saying, he would say here, I feel like you've been orphaned from me as a parent, that you've been the children ripped away from me. He doesn't say that. He says, I have been orphaned. I am like the child who has been ripped out of their parents' hands, out of the family's home and pulled away. That's how I feel. I felt like a father to you. I felt like a mother to you. And I feel like an orphan child having been pulled away from you. What kind of emotion do you think is involved in that? What kind of affections do you think are, are found in that kind of phrase? That is a deep, familial, personal, committed kind of affection that he has had for this church He says it's only been for a brief amount of time. Literally, it's a time of an hour, a short amount of time. Just It feels like it's just been a short amount of time. But he was nonetheless severed, ripped away. But notice how he describes it. I've I've been ripped away from you in person, not in spirit. Literally, in person, not in spirit in heart not in heart my heart is still with you they might have pulled me away from you and orphaned me from you but my heart's affections my desires for you are still very present there he doesn't mean that in some kind of mystical sense he just wants them to know that I haven't changed at all in how I think about you no matter what you're going through My desires for you, my affections for you have not changed one bit. It doesn't matter how violent the severing of the relationship may look in person. I'm still there with you in heart. His heart hasn't moved an inch. His affirming affections remain just as they were when he was with them in person. Like he expressed back in chapter 2 verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own soul. He's expressing my inner man, my soul, my heart still beats with great affection for you. It hasn't changed at all. Listen, you know this. When a family member travels, you miss them. You miss them. If they were violently removed from you as if they were gone forever, you would more than just miss them. You would be in anguish over the loss of their presence. And that is how Paul viewed these believers in this church. This is how he felt about them. This is a heartfelt ministry. A heartfelt ministry. This is the kind of tie that you should have with those with whom you're connected with in local church ministry. That if there was separation, you would feel that deeply, painfully. It's heartfelt, like family, more than just associates, more than just acquaintances. These are eternal relationships built off of the shed blood of our shared Savior. Is that how you're building relationships? Within the church. Within the church. Have you you taken the steps to actually commit yourself in a formal way to the church? Remember, 
in our members meetings, before we start our members meeting, we always stand up together and we reaffirm out loud together a commitment that we have made to one another as a church family, right? That's what membership is. We have made a commitment to these people to live out Christianity with them, to pour our life into into each other. And some might say, yeah, but I've been hurt by churches. And so I don't know if I want to make that commitment again. Well, join the crowd. Join the crowd. Ministry is painful because it is so personal, isn't it? It is personal. It's life on life and you're... You're opening yourself up. You're becoming vulnerable to people at times. Yes, it's very personal and it's going to be painful. And the relationships that are mended when those painful personal trials come, they grow stronger and they grow deeper. That's what we need to be doing. So listen, you can go to growth group And you can treat your growth group as if it's an event that you're supposed to attend because that's what members do. Or you could go to a growth group and you could involve yourself often and repeatedly as if these are people who are consequential to your own fellowship with the Lord. You could involve yourself in a women's discipleship group as if it's just kind of a perfunctory thing you do to study the Bible, talk about it, pray together, and then move on. Or you could invest yourself in the relationships as if these were more than just surface acquaintances. You could go to a men's group and you could get involved in discipleship and talk about the details of life in such a way that you find your life growing more and more dependent on one another for your spiritual health and growth, or you could go and say, well, I do the men's Bible study thing. I go. I attend. There's a way to do this in which it's heartfelt ministry. There's a way to do ministry that involves very little of your heart. Paul's personal affection was heartfelt. It was also an intentional pursuit. That's a second way to describe the personal affections he had. It was was an intentional pursuit. That's how I summarized the phrase that we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now, the word for eager that's used here can be translated a number of ways in the New Testament. If you just looked it up in in the New American Standard Version of the Bible, you'll see some of those differences of nuance in the translation. This word is translated in Ephesians 4.3 as diligent, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Or 2 Timothy 2.15, which all the Awana folks know really well, right? By memory. If you've been in Awana, we should make you stand up and recite it. It's be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't have any need to be ashamed because he handles accurately the word of truth, right? No no shame before God because you're diligent. It also has a sense of eager effort behind it. It's translated that way in 2 Timothy 4, 9. Make every effort. That's the same word. Make every effort. 2 Timothy 4.21. Make every effort to come before winter. Titus 3.12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. So this is not just internal eagerness. It's not just a desire. It's also a diligence. As one commentator noted, it indicates more than mere desire. It denotes actual effort on Paul's part to fulfill his desire. It's not just what you want, it's what you do. This is an intentional, diligent, eager effort. Paul is planning to come back to them. He is constantly thinking of ways to get back to them, to be with them, to be around them, to minister to them even more. Now that's a strong word, isn't it? Eagerness that has diligence and every effort involved. But that's not the mere way in which he expresses it. Do you see how he heaps on top of this word eager 
all kinds of affectionate terminology. He adds to that. He says we are all the more eager. It's not just I'm diligently pursuing it. I am diligently pursuing it with every ounce of energy, all the more. Excessive eagerness, like that orphan child. What do you think they think about all the time? Get me back to my family. He doesn't stop there. All the more eager with great desire. Do you see that? With great desire to see your face. Great desire. The word desire is a really, really strong term in the New Testament. The word epithumia, which is oftentimes translated as, in a negative way, lust. Lust has its own intentional intensity connected to it, doesn't it? But this is not just epithumia. This is great desire, great longing to see your face. He just keeps heaping these terms on top of one another to say, I don't want you to ever think for one second that a moment passes that I am not doing everything in my ability to get back to see you. That's how much I care about you. It's what he'll express again in chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Or verse 10 in chapter 3, as we night and day, during the day, during the night, we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. This is how Paul felt about this church. And it's not just this church. Paul felt this way about every church that he served. I think back to Philippians chapter 1, a passage that we heard preached not long ago. In verse 7, Paul says in Philippians 1, It is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. That's pretty powerful, intense longing for a group of people that he has served. We saw expression of that in the book of Acts when Paul was being torn away from The Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, he has this long conversation with the Ephesian elders and when it it is revealed that this would be the last time that these elders would ever see Paul physically in that life, listen to what they did. Acts 20 verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they, the whole group, began to weep aloud and they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. Can you imagine that scene? They get off their knees from praying, realizing that this is the last time they'd ever see and the entire way they're moving towards the ship for him to board that ship, they're weeping and crying and embracing him and even kissing him. Our Lord expressed that kind of deep affection for the people that he wanted to shepherd. There's that interesting statement at the end of Matthew 9 Verse 36, he was seeing the people, all the crowds. And he looked around at all the crowds and he felt compassion for them. Splunkna. I love that word. Just use it every now and then. Splunkna. You know what it means? It means your bowels. He felt something inwardly. His inner person, when he looked at them, he, he got that, that gut feeling you get when you're being moved emotionally. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And who is he? 
He's a shepherd. And these people are being harassed by all the religious winds that are blowing them here and there and there's no one leading and they're going this way and that way and they're not moving toward God and he's a shepherd and his heart actually breaks for these people. It's a strong kind of affection. I talked about this a couple of About a week ago at our men's gathering, we talked about biblical friendship. and We just reminded ourselves of the kind of friendship that Jonathan had with David. You remember that? 1 Samuel 18.1, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Verse 3 of 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 1 Samuel 19.1, Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. 1 Samuel 20 verse 8, if there is iniquity in me, David said, you put me to death yourself. He said, why would he say that? We're such friends, our friendship is not based on just mere personal affection. If you see something in me that's ungodly, that's sinful, that deserves a death penalty, David says to Jonathan, his friend who loved him as himself, then you put me to death. Holiness means most to us. That's a powerful kind of friendship, isn't it? In 1 Samuel 20, verse 16, they made a covenant with one another. That's a unique relationship of commitment to each other. In verse 17 of 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And when Jonathan was killed in battle, what did David say of Jonathan? 2 Samuel 1, 26, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. That's not sinful kind of affection. That's just intense Commitment of friendship and relationship that values one another deeply. This is not, this kind of affection that we're reading from Paul here, it's not new in the Bible. It's not, it's not something he just felt for this one congregation. This is, this is how the Bible talks about how we relate to one another when we serve one another. And he wants to see their face back in our passage. He wants to see their face. I have great, eager, longing desire that I'm making every effort in the world to do to see your face, to be face-to-face with you, in person, embracing you, having a meal with you, being in your home, being involved with your family members, preaching in person, not video, or I guess writing for him. He writes a letter. That's good, that's holy, that's right, but I want to be in person with you. It's like John would say in his little letters of 2 John, 3 John, I have a lot more to say to you, but I don't want to say it until I'm face to face with you. This is an intentional pursuit of the most intense and passionate kind. He's planning, he's plotting, he's considering night and day, prayerfully, personally, how he can get back to them. He loves them. He wants to see them in person. That phrase has more meaning to me today than it did three years ago. Does it you? When I was with a number of those pastors this past week, we were all kind of rehearsing. What was it like for you that day when after weeks of shutdown and some some pastors had been shut down for maybe three or four weeks, some in other parts of the country were shut down for over a year. There were some brothers who live overseas and they were shut down for longer than we can even imagine. What, what was it like when you came back? And I said, well, I, I, know, I know there were tears all across this building when we started singing for the first time together in person. It was hard to hold it back. We, we got to taste a little bit of what Paul feels here. To see your face again. Is that how you think about your church? 
Do you anticipate Sundays like that? Do you prepare for them more than just meditating on the passage, but how you might invest yourself in them, in the people who are around you? Are you so praying so regularly and so fervently for the members of the church that you find yourself eagerly anticipating seeing them on the Lord's day? You're planning for ways that you could get together in the week to come over lunch or coffee or just to spend a moment or two together to study the Bible together, to pray together, to share a meal, to spend free time together so you can be with one another. You know, there's a way that you can view church as just an event that you show up on Sunday, you attend, you sit in the pew, and then you get up and you walk out. Some as quickly as you can walk out. Because I've I've done the church thing. The church thing is not about sitting here and just listening or taking in, singing some songs, taking it in, enjoying it. It's about taking all of that truth and all that we've done together and investing it in each other all of the time. That's what we're talking about. It's not about having friendly acquaintances. You say, well, I, I want that, but, but people just don't invest that in me. Well, listen, I I just want to challenge all of us. If you want that kind of relationship, then try to mimic what Paul is doing here with other people. Forget about what you don't get from others. What are you doing to mimic Paul and the way he feels and the way he interacts and the intentionality he's putting in to relating to them? Now, I would guess that there were people in the church in Thessalonica that were, well, Hard people, challenging people, personalities that didn't quite vibe with Paul. I I would guess that. I sometimes think Paul would be a hard guy to get along with, maybe. Just just reading something, every time he talks, scripture's coming out. That would convict me, you know. How do you relate to this guy? But he's intentional. Could you be that way? Could you be that way? What keeps you from that? You want relationships within the church, you have to make every effort to pursue them intentionally, repeatedly, for great lengths of time with personal fervency. Not just to be loved either. You're not doing it to get something back from the person. There's something else, there's truth, there's biblical truth that motivates you and we're going to see that in Paul in a moment. But you see how personal this is. So ministry affections are personal. It's a heartfelt ministry. It's an intentional pursuit. But also, personal affection is expressed a third way. It's expressed in spiritual struggle. In spiritual struggle. You see verse 18? For we wanted to come to you. Paul talking about himself, Silvanus, Silas, Timothy. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul... The, the apostle, you remember me? I, Paul, more than once. Time and again. Time and again is how this reads in, in the original Greek. Time and again, I kept wanting to get back to you. And yet, what does the text say at the end of verse 18? Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. We wanted to come to you. I was doing it all the time. I kept wanting to get there. I kept planning and plotting how to get there. But Satan hindered us. Does Paul have bad theology here? I mean, most of us would look at this and say, Paul, that's the providence of God. Just suck it up, brother. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Move along, brother. Blaming the devil? I mean, that, that's a cop-out, isn't it? The devil kept me from getting to you? Well, that would be a good one. I wanted to help you out. <laughs> wanted to be with you. The devil was after me. He kept me. Why does Paul say this? I think he's trying to show us this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle. It's like war with the devil himself. Now, now he doesn't mean by this that Satan was literally in the room with him 
physically wrestling him to the ground and pinning him down so he couldn't get up and get back to them. It's not what he means here. Consider what it was that was physically keeping Paul from getting back to them. Jealous Jewish leaders in Thessalonica who did not want him there, that ran him out of the city, chased him out of Berea. There were people, people motivated by sinful motivations, trying to keep Paul from that city. Those Jews that stirred up the entire city into an uproar so that he couldn't even step foot in it or remain in it another day. People were keeping Paul from them. And he says, but Satan hindered us. It's almost, you can hear in this, in Matthew 16, when Peter had just made this wonderful spiritual statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus turned to the disciples and said, hey, guess what, guys? That's a wonderful statement. You didn't get that from man. You got that from the Lord. And by the way, we're going to Jerusalem. Guess what's gonna happen in Jerusalem? I'm gonna be killed. And Peter looks at him and says, no, you're not. What are you talking about? We're going to Jerusalem and you're the king and you're going to take over. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me what? What? Satan? Right. You're saying things that don't have God's mind. You're saying things that have hindrance involved in them. You want to keep me from the purposes of God. That's satanic. Now, maybe there was more than just people. Maybe there were unforeseen circumstances. Maybe there was a lack of funds. Maybe it was the weather. Could be personal illness. Maybe, maybe some of his ministry partners were saying, yeah, I don't know if I want to go back there. You remember what we got when we went there? You remember what they did? The whole city in an uproar? Paul, really? You want to go back? I'm not feeling what you're feeling here, Paul. Maybe it was that. We're not, we're not actually told all of the ways in which Paul was hindered by Satan. But it was satanic. That doesn't mean that Paul thought that Satan was more powerful than God or he had a small view of God or God was incapable of overcoming the intense efforts of the evil one. That's not what he's intending to say here. He's simply intending to say that the evil one was at work. This is a spiritual battle. He's not doubting the sovereign purposes of God or the sovereign ordination of God. He knows his Bible. He trusts the sovereignty of God. He knows the book of Job, that even all the suffering that Job went through was at the divine ordination of God, though carried out by the devil himself. He knows all of that. He knows because he says it in 2 Corinthians that God allowed Paul to have a thorn in the flesh. Remember that? God allowed Paul to have a thorn in the flesh. And what did Paul call the thorn in the flesh? A messenger of Satan. He understood this is spiritual. That's why he tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What does Paul mean by that? Well, all of the relationships that he was talking about in the book of Ephesians, particularly in chapter 4, the relationships you have with other people where you're struggling to forgive them or talk nicely or kindly about them, or relationships like husband loving a wife and a wife submitting to a husband, or children obeying parents and parents actually leading their children in the wisdom of God. You know those struggles that happen in life with all those people? Slaves with masters, masters with slaves. You know those kinds of real, physical, interpersonal struggles? Our struggle is not fundamentally at its core with flesh and blood. What you're experiencing in your marriage is not you versus your spouse. What's going on with you and your children is not just you and your children. What's going on at work is not just you and your employer. What's going on in the interpersonal relationships you have here and issues of forgiveness, it's not just you and them. There's something spiritual behind it. You can't see it. You don't know all the intentions behind it. 
You, you, you can't just say, I'm going to bind the devil and the devil flee and it all goes away. It doesn't work that way. You take all the resources of the gospel and you apply those gospel resources to the relationships that you have in whatever context they are and you live in those and that's how you win the spiritual battle. That's how you stand firm, Ephesians 6. Because our battle is a spiritual battle and Paul recognized that. It's spiritual. But what was the particular spiritual battle between Paul and getting back to Thessalonica? What was it between Paul and Satan? Seeing them in person. He hindered us from seeing you in person. He has acted in such a way that has relegated me to writing a book. Writing a letter. The letter's good. We're studying it. It's going to last forever. It's wonderful. But he wants to be in person, doesn't he? You ever thought about that carefully? Effective biblical ministry requires an in-person element to it. It cannot be accomplished online. Oh, there's wonderful benefits. You're sick, you can turn it on, you can listen. You can even see if the internet connection's good. You can see better sometimes than others. Online isn't real ministry though. It's not the fullness of ministry. Real ministry cannot be accomplished through absence. Spiritual growth, right preaching, effective responding happens when we are together. How many times have you said, I've watched it online, but it's not like being there. Well, what's not like being there? There's an interaction. There's something happening here this morning between us. As we're going through this exercise of preaching and singing and praying together, something's happening here that cannot be mimicked in any other way. And do you see that it is the enemy's plan to isolate you from each other? To assume that you don't have to be a part of a congregation. You don't have to be a part of someone's life. If you ever use that phrase, you are echoing the devil's hiss. Yes, you do have to be in person. If you can be there, you must be there. I I get it. I understand there are exceptions. Let's not make exceptions normal. Let's keep them as exceptions. We must be together. Hebrews 10. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Why? Because then you can't stimulate one another to love and good deeds, which keeps you in the faith. That's what Hebrews is talking about, isn't it? It's the enemy who wants to keep you from others to limit discipleship to something that you merely read or listen to or watch, but you don't really have to interact with in any personal way with another person. We all have reasons for why we don't meet together at times, but it is well worth our consideration as to how are we allowing anything, anything to keep us from serving with each other face to face. Does Paul have personal affections for this church? Oh, yes. But listen, they're not just personal. They go beyond that. Non-Christians can have personal affections for each other. There's something else. There's another element of the affections he has that makes this ministry that he has among them really a biblical ministry that affirms a biblical ministry and it's the second part you can't have you can't have this ministry and be truly biblical if you don't have this second element of affection the second element we call eternal affections eternal affections That kind of Godward yearning that drives our personal affections. It's not just that we like each other. It is that we want to see each other in front of God. And it drives us to have a ministry 
that pours into each other with such love and such desire that we're trying to help each other be like Christ forever. That's what he expresses in verses 19 and 20. Now, what sort of eternal affections does Paul exhibit that we should look to form in affirming a genuinely biblical investment in ministry? First of all, eternal affections are affections that eternally confirm the people within ministry. They're affections, they're they're seeking to eternally confirm the people within your ministry. That's verse 19. What do we mean by eternally confirm? Well, this is what Paul is after. He's not just after friendships. He's after the kind of relationships that would show his ministry to be eternally right. They affirm his ministry. Notice how he expresses it in verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Now you would think that he says, it's Jesus. Jesus is our hope. And he is. Jesus is our joy. Yes, he is. Jesus is our crown of exaltation. Yes, he is. He is. But he is in a particular way. Who's our hope? Who's our joy? Who's our crown of exaltation? Why why does he say our hope? Well, if you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 3, he talked about a steadfastness of hope and hope in the Bible normally is referring to the return of Jesus, the second coming of Christ. He is our hope. He is our expectation. Our hope is found when he returns and makes all things new. That's our hope. That's our confident expectation. What is he saying here? Who is our confident expectation in the coming of the Lord Jesus? Who do we have hope that will actually affirm us to be true believers and that our ministry was a true biblical ministry. Who is our hope when Jesus returns? Now I want you to notice he does not say where is our hope, in what is our hope. He makes it personal. Who is our hope? Who will be the ones who confirm our ministry to be genuine? He goes on, who is our joy? And he doesn't just mean my present happiness. He means my eternal satisfaction. Who is our joy? Who is the joy that is actually going to elate our hearts in the coming of the Lord? Who makes us thrilled? Who makes us smile? Who helps us to enjoy all the painful work that we're doing in ministry at times now? Who, not what, who. Who, he says, is our crown of exaltation. Do you see that word? Not exaltation, like we're lifting something up. No, exaltation. Who are we celebrating in? Boasting in is the word. It's really the word for boasting. Who are we bragging about? with celebratory bragging. Who's our crown? And it doesn't mean the, the royal crown of, of a king or a queen. This is the Stephanos. This is the laurel wreath, the crown that was placed on the victorious athlete at the end of the event when they had won the event. The victor's crown, the wreath given to the winner of the Olympic or the Isthmian Games in the first century like the the championship ring that they put on the finger if you win the World Series or the Super Bowl? Who, Who is that? Who is the sign of our celebration? Not what, who? Is it not even you? You are. You're the ones that we will boast about like you were the championship ring around the finger. 
You are the ones in whom we hope. When the Lord comes back, you're the ones that affirm our ministry. You are the people who make us smile with deep, eternal satisfaction. You. It's you. But notice when. What makes Paul smile now in such suffering? It is you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. You. When you are spiritually completed, that's in the presence of our Lord Jesus. When you are brought into his presence to be with him forever. It's what he refers to in chapter 4, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. At his coming, that's a significant word, the parousia, coming it's a word when used in the Thessalonian letters almost exclusively refers to the events and there are many events that are related to the return of Jesus it's not just one event but there's many and we'll see those and here Paul envisions a time when the Thessalonians are actually found to be in the very presence of Jesus connected with his return And at that point, they are, that Thessalonian church, the affirmation of all of Paul's ministry. His hope will have been realized. His joy is complete. His boasting is celebrated. The crown is put on his head at that moment of victory in ministry. This is the same idea that he expresses in chapter 3, verse 13. At the end of that chapter, he's praying that Jesus might establish your hearts, the Lord might establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul envisions a time when he's, he's going to be able to see all the saints that he served presented to the Father. And the Father confirms them as true saints, truly completed at the coming of Jesus. At the end of this book, In chapter 5, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. When are we going to be sanctified entirely? May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame. When? At the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when completion takes place. what Paul refers to as the judgment when we stand before the Father, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can read it in verse 10. There's a judgment in which all the works of the believers are demonstrated before the Father in his presence and he affirms every true believer. That's how we serve. That's how Paul served. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. What does he want to do? I want to take everybody who's a part of these churches and I want to present them to the Lord when he comes as complete. That's my hope. That's my joy. That's my crown of boasting. This is why we serve. Not for present, personal, temporary accolades but for future Christ exalting people perfecting eternal rejoicing that's why we serve each other and when Jesus returns and you are found complete in him that is the proof that what we are doing together is legitimate and he wants that he is so moved to serve them so personally because of an eternal affection in his heart for them That's the thrill of ministry. That's the thrill of ministry. People are the product that affirms the truthfulness and reality of ministry. People perfected in Jesus. Not buildings and not present ministry accolades from the culture that says, wow, look at what you've built. No, no. We're happy to see more people. We're happy to see what God does, but what makes us thrilled is when you're all in front of the Lord, finished. And we're working right now so that you would be found in Jesus. That's the only thing we really, really, really care about because that's what's going to 
last forever. I mean, what kind of affection does an athlete have when they finish the race? They're they're not just happy to have finished. Think about the victorious athlete. When do they really feel, feel the thrill? When the medal is put around their neck, then all the hard work, all the labor, all the sacrifice, at the end when it's all finished and complete and you're victorious, ah, yes. That's what Paul's expressing here. One other affection that we want to note here that's an eternal one. He just reiterates it, but in a different way. Yes, affections that are eternal in the completion of people, but secondly, affections that eternally enjoy the people within ministry. Affections that will eternally enjoy the people within ministry. That's an eternal affection. Do you see it in verse 20? You are our glory and joy. The people are our glory. The people are our joy. You know what this looks like. There is an earthly glory that can be given to people today. Right? The athlete finishes, they stand on the stand, the medal's put around their neck. There is a glory they receive. There's a kind of brilliance in that moment as they're standing on the elevated platform above everyone else. It's their glory. The gold medal, not the silver, not the bronze, the gold one. It's a glory. Or the guy who wins the Masters. It's the green jacket, right? Who else gets to wear the green jacket? Nobody wears the green jacket. And he gets to wear it for a year all around the country. And he gets to go on TV and he gets to talk about all that he's accomplished and he's done. That's glory. Paul doesn't look at the jacket or the medal or the wreath or even his own name as his glory. You. You are my glory. If you're finished, that's my glory. Nothing else. Just you. Finished in Jesus, you're my glory. My joy, not not my name being recognized by God. Look what he has done. Not my name on a book. Not my name on a sign. Not my name recognized by everybody out there. You. You. In front of Jesus. He actually enjoys the people most. He doesn't want to claim recognition, praise, and accolades for some temporary accomplishment. He can't wait to be in heaven with them. By the way, this is not the only time we're going to hang out together. You know that? That's good. And I'll be a better person when we hang out in eternity. Amen. Amen. Others will be too. (laughs) Right. I mean, we all will. We all will. And we'll be together. And it'll be a relationship unlike anything you've ever experienced. The people will be the crown. Is that what gives you joy now? That's what gets you through the hardships and the heartache? Does that thrill you? Does that motivate you to press on in ministry? So what kind of affections affirm a truly biblical ministry? What kind of aspirations show the heart of God? They're personal affections, not impersonal, personal affections. A heartfelt ministry viewed through intentional pursuits and overcoming all the spiritual struggle involved to see people eternally affirmed before the Father so they can be enjoyed for all eternity. That's the kind of affection that marks true biblical ministry. That's what we are trying to do together here. As imperfect as we do that, that's our aim. That has to be your aim with each other. And if we do that, 
Can you imagine the unmitigated, ever-increasing joy we will have for all eternity with one another before the Father finished in Christ? I want you to pray. I want you to ask God to reveal to you what's hindering me from pursuing that kind of approach to ministry with each other. Reveal that. Ask God to reveal it. And then ask him to give you conviction and boldness to pursue the kind of ministry that has true affections behind it. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that in this moment you would make clear to us what tries to keep us separate, not just physically, but even relationally from one another. And may we confess the sin May we forsake whatever it is that keeps us separate. Reveal pride. Reveal anger. Bitterness. Jealousy. And may we confess that before you. The spiritual well-being, the eternal confirmation of others that we're sitting by today must have greater importance in our heart than the worst slight or the worst reaction that we have ever had to someone offending us. Help us to put that aside. Something more valuable, more eternal is at stake. And help us to invest each other in each other with true biblical affection. For your glory, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.